an A&E original podcast. The really amazing thing about hip-hop is, like, it tells you how somebody your age is thinking who's growing up all the way on the other side of the world from you. And then you get to find that you guys groove to the same thing, you know? That's just the beautiful thing about hip-hop and and. You, you get to learn the specificity of the struggle and you also get to learn the joy of, of that universal connection as well. You know, some of the early things that we were doing in the 80s, you know, um, trying to bring that New York flavor to, you know, West Coast aesthetics. And that was magical. Oh, we was the Beatles when we went to Japan. When we got off the plane in Japan, we was like the the Jackson 5, the Beatles all in one. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was like the British invasion to, to the U.S. It was the U.S. Yeah. invasion to Tokyo, the hip-hop invasion. Yeah, man. In this episode, we talked to Busy B, Davey D, and Jeff Chang. Davey and Jeff are great examples of how people moved around and changed area codes in the midst of their hip-hop journey. Now, for us to take a look at hip-hop regionally on this podcast, we would have to do hundreds of them because so many burgeoning hip-hop scenes have arisen out of this country. Louisiana, Atlanta, Seattle, Detroit, Miami. So what we're going to do is just concentrate on the East Coast, the West Coast, and a lot of details in between. Born in the Bronx... Raised in the streets from coast to coast and worldwide, these are the stories, the moments in time, the places and faces, the origins of hip-hop. Hosted by me, Grandmaster Kaz. The Bronx is the birthplace of hip-hop, but hip-hop has grown leaps and bounds out of the boundaries of the Boogie Down Bronx is spread across this globe. And this is an examination of that spread and the places that took hold in the United States and then abroad. The story of hip hop is a story about neighborhoods. It's a story about community. It's a story about identity. And so, as the art form spread across the country, it maintained this hyper-local sense of place and belonging. Part of the reason for this is the grassroots nature of hip-hop. People went to shows, passed around mixtapes, and tuned in on their FM dial. Corporate music, the kind that got national airplay, wasn't interested in hip-hop when it emerged. You had to be close to it. Same way that many of us in New York would go down south for the summer and we would bring those things, but as quiet as kept, if you really think about it, everybody say, well, they also had some stuff jumping off down there, too. And we brought some of that flavor back, you know, back home. And um, you had a very interesting phenomenon in the early 80s, in the mid-80s, as hip-hop in some of these other regions started to emerge with people who were outside of the hood looking at those expressions and either clowning it or saying that it wasn't true. It wasn't hip-hop. So, uh, you know, you would hear like a Too Short who's been around since 84, 85. You would hear Commander C and some of these people that were coming out of Richmond. Or you would see these dancers that had been around since the 60s. And you would have somebody outside the community say, they're not real, they're not true. When in fact, they very much were true. They were true to the expressions, the indigenous expressions that came out of the same conditions and similar challenges that we had in New York, where 
they were young and pretty much abandoned and facing, you know, systemic hardships and was like, well, we'll create our own scene. And I think now there's an appreciation for those local scenes all around in different parts of the country. The artists that they were kind of pushing forward, large professor and main source, right? And then from there you get Nas, and from there you get, you know, you got that, that whole like trend going through, right? You have, you have like Queens to Brooklyn, then you get Biggie and everybody, and it's like that whole scene where everybody is very much about advancing the aesthetic of hip hop and like at the same time representing like their boroughs, their neighborhoods, their blocks. Um, that stuff was really, really uh, real to us. So this is laying all the groundwork for hip hop really blowing up in the late 90s. But um, this sort of thing where like everybody is interconnected, like we're, you know, like a record like Try by 12 by East Flatbush Project comes out and everybody's like, Oh, what's that record? And everybody's trying to get that record, and and uh, and then everybody's playing that record, right? Like, I think for some folks, like on the East Coast, like Blackalicious Melodica or the Latirix record was that for them, maybe, um, you know. But like those those things that were just so deep, it couldn't have been made anywhere else, right? Like East Flatbush Project is not going to come out of anywhere but East Flatbush, right? Smith and Wesson, Black Moon, all those folks are not going to come out of anywhere but like East New York and and that part of Brooklyn, right? Like that's just like that's the stuff that we were about. We were all about that type of stuff at that particular moment. <laughs> Every place had their 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 base or their foundation, even though they got it from us. You know what I mean? Harlem started adapting their hip hop from the disco that they were doing prior to that, to the way that Bronx did hip hop and Brooklyn and the other boroughs as well. So we pretty much led the charge. And uh, of course there was like, who the fuck is them? Who the fuck is y'all? Like who, you know, that competitive edge as far as it's concerned. But you see at the end of the day, and I always say, if hip hop did anything, it brought the world together. And not just the world, the outside world, but the inner sanctum of hip hop. We have a bond. We created something that's going to last forever that you can never take away. And that, that bond exists within us. So that gave us the unity that we didn't have when we were all kind of doggy dog and everybody scrapping, you know, to get themselves known and themselves in the spotlight. Now we all OGs. We all old school. Okay, we have a bond that unites us, and that's the culture. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Growing up on this little rock in the middle of the Pacific, uh, on this little island, we were just hungry for hip-hop. You know, like, I, I remember... Stephen Hager's book Hip Hop, and it had pictures of Phase Two, Phase Two's graffiti 
uh, drawings. It had pictures of Kaz's notebooks. It had um, pictures of like Dondi and Keith Haring um, in the nightclubs. Um, and we were just like, dang, like, what's this all about? Like, we want to know everything about it. So I remember, you know, Wild Style comes out, Style Wars comes out. We're like getting this on, on like little VHS cassettes and dubbing it for each other. It was basically the type of thing where it was, if you knew about it, it was like you're a part of this secret crew, you know, of folks that were just all about it. And then, and then, um, you know, people are, are, are locking, they're popping, you know, um, Electric Boogaloo, uh, they're breaking, you know, and then the movies, the sort of, we call them now like the hip hop exploitation movies start coming out, you know, break in, break into Electric Boogaloo. And then those movies come out and then everybody is a graffiti writer now, you know, everybody is a b-boy, everybody, everybody's a b-girl, everybody pops, you know what I mean? Everybody is into this stuff. It became the, the cool thing uh, to be about. Everybody's listening to Run DMC. That's when we're like really beginning to understand the specificity of the places that folks are, are coming from, right? You hear, you hear the message and you're hearing stories about black New York City during the, the, you know, the Reagan recession in 1982. You're hearing, you know, like records uh, coming out of Los Angeles, like the really sped up techno pop stuff that was hot at that time, Egyptian Lover, um, you know, and stuff like that, uh, Uncle Jam's Army. Um, you're hearing those types of records and you're getting a feel for how fast paced, like, Los Angeles is and what that's all about, right? And you're hearing, you're hearing the sort of, um, you know, the funk type stuff, and you're getting the sense of like what 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 it's like to be, uh, you know, in an industrial city, uh, in in you know, sort of the the Midwest where folks have migrated from the South to the to Ohio and Chicago and that kind of thing. So you're hearing funk, um, and that's like becoming part of of what we're about at that time we didn't really have any kind of a of an idea about the different geographies of it you just had a different feel for these things and then when we started seeing the movies you know we were plunged right into new york city uh we were plunged into you know what's happening um in los angeles from venice beach to radio you know the club radio downtown and people started trying to figure out how to imitate that how to be able to build that type of vibe west coast hip-hop may have been born in the bronx but rapping was supposedly forged in south los angeles in the aftermath of the watts uprising an artistic movement emerged from the black enclave focused on poetry and the spoken word in the late 60s, the Watts Prophets performed their verses over jazz riffs. The seeds of rapping were sown, as was the term itself. A few years later, in neighboring Compton, DJ parties were growing in popularity, centered around upscale nightclub Eves After Dark. Eves would soon become the unofficial center of the West Coast hip-hop universe when owner Alonzo Williams built a recording studio in the back of the club. Dr. Dre, Eazy-E, Ice Cube, and many others forged their artistic and business relationships in this building. The sweeping historical narrative of this particular area code lives on in today's artists like Kendrick Lamar. 
because of the way that LA is, like everybody rides, right? So it was maybe a little bit more for like long cruising, you know, as opposed to like the Bay Area, you know, where it's a little bit more compact. But, you know, it was it was uh, really amazing to kind of be a part of that, that thing at that particular time because um, there was a, a big uh, sort of traffic and like for us at, at Quantum and a lot of the underground DJs and, and radio heads um, and the crews that came, came out of it, like our North Star was the Freestyle Fellowship and the heavyweights um, in Los Angeles and, and what was coming out of the Good Life Cafe. Like that was the type of thing that they were the folks who were our, you know, they were our uh, Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, like they were, they were our Ornette Coleman's, you know what I mean? Like those cats were, those cats had it all and they had a deep tie to, um, to the free jazz scene. And they also had like, they were just forward thinking and doing all of these things in a really, you know, uh, aesthetically risky kind of a way. Um, and so we were inspired, I'll put it this way, we were inspired equally by like folks like E-40 and Too Short uh, as, and you know, the Macs, all the Macs, Mac Mill, Mac Ma, Mac Dre, and then by like, you know, the heavyweights and the Freestyle Fellowship folks and the Far Side and the, you know, the crews that were kind of coming up uh, during the the turn of the 80s into the 90s. You go to a party in LA and they they play like Mob Deep and then they play Volume 10, you know? So, and, and, the, and the kids who are coming to that, you know, I mean, these are 12, 13, 14 year old kids like I was in, in Honolulu who are growing up knowing like, yo, this is Mob Deep's Queens, right? And this is Volume 10's like LA, you know? And that being played back to back by, you know, Mark Love or somebody, DJ Mark Love or somebody like that was just like, it was everything. I have a unique perspective because I was lucky enough and young enough that I was able to see and participate in what was going on in the Bronx in the 70s and moving out here in the early 80s to the West Coast, to Oakland, Bay Area. When I moved out West, 3,000 miles away, and stepped off into the scene, it's like, yo, I'm from New York. People in Oakland couldn't give a damn. They looked at you like, that's good. And it was just like, that's cool. This is Oakland. And what I realized is that up in the Bay, it was its own thing. And got a chance to see the funk scene and dance scene that was emerging, that, that had already been in existence here and seeing how that scene would it, you know, do a dance and in, in, in integrate itself with hip hop as I knew it in the 1970s. When I was in the Bay Area, you know, there's this there's footage online, you know, of, you know, some of the early things that we were doing in the 80s, you know, um, trying to bring that New York flavor to, you know, West Coast aesthetics. And so that was magical. And to see that the one thing out West is that people kept their voice. They didn't try to mimic New York. It was like, this is what we gonna do because we're from Richmond. You know, we're from San Francisco and we're from Oakland and this is what we do. And we have our own standards and definitions for being fly. 
And, um, and so that's a beautiful thing as well to, um, to see how uh, people got down here. So there's a couple of things when we talk about hip hop outside of New York. When you lived in New York and you went to the neighboring cities, the, if you said you was from New York, you got a lot of respect. People were like, yo, they're from New York. You're from Harlem, you're from the Bronx. I mean, you know, people kind of like, it inferred that there was something that you had that needed to be observed and ultimately emulated. Ever since West Coast hip hop has been getting um, their kudos and applause, Um, for their contributions to hip-hop, there's been a little rivalry. When you say West Coast, you usually think Los Angeles. But the Bay Area also had a burgeoning hip-hop movement going on out there. Even though they're not directly connected, uh, that's what created their little rivalry. When you say West Coast, you got to include the Bay Area along with them. People like Pac and Digital Underground and Too Short and all kind of cats came out of there, as well as the NWAs and the Eazy-E's and the Ice Cubes that came out of Los Angeles. They both contributed greatly to this culture called hip-hop. As hip-hop started to become known, the attitude wasn't so much, how can we be like New York? But the attitude was like, oh, that's like some of the stuff that we're doing already. Let's see if we can integrate that to it. We were talking about how hip-hop traveled and people took it with them because it wasn't played on national radio. Well, back in the days, hip-hop traveled through cassette tapes. And um, we didn't have the wherewithal to to be on tour, to travel to other cities, but these cassette tapes traveled. So my first experience going to Los Angeles back in 1982, I got there and did a gig and somebody was singing my rhyme, uh, Yvette. And I'm like, how the hell do they know? This is not a record. It wasn't a national, it was a cassette tape. How did they know my rhyme and are singing it word for word? And this is just a testament to how hip hop travels. Okay, the power of hip-hop, the energy of hip-hop doesn't even have to physically be placed somewhere. It's going to get where it needs to get. Okay, and that is the power of hip-hop. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. For me, you know, I came up, I moved up to the San Francisco Bay Area and I dropped into this, like, ridiculously live scene. I mean, I feel like the Bay Area in the late 80s is probably one of the biggest untold stories. You know, it was 
It became literally the, the second biggest market in the U.S. behind New York City, even before L.A. was blowing up. Um, just because there was so much going on, all the radio state, all the underground radio stations, um, all of the clubs, and then there was uh, a cruising scene, which is hard to describe for people like who have grown up under curfews and um, cruising bans and all those kinds of things, like noise ordinances and gang ordinances. But young people used to really hang hang the f out right like we used to really just like be out there on the corners you know on the weekends and so i remember i, I moved up to the bay area and i was a i was a kid going to uc berkeley and literally telegraph and durant was the joint like that was the spot that everybody came to from the entire bay area on friday and saturday nights and that's where the ciphers were you know you had dance ciphers you have folks out there with their boom boxes. You have people in rap ciphers. Folks just cruising down the block with their, like, you know, huge-ass subwoofers in the trunk. You know, their trunks kind of, like, opened up in the back so you, everybody could hear the boom. Like, that was the vibe, you know? And and then, you know, for, for us sort of, like, for me kind of coming into that, I then kind of gravitated to the radio station, to the underground radio station, because I wanted to be a part of that. And when you, when we got there, what was cool to understand was that there were stations like this everywhere, right? All across the country. And there were cruising scenes like this everywhere, right? Like uh, in LA, it would have been Crenshaw and Whittier Boulevard, right? And I don't know where it would have been in Miami, you know, but Miami had the thing going on. Houston had had the thing going on. Seattle you'd be up on Broadway, right? Like everybody had these different types of things going on. So um, as I got to, you know, be able to, you know, travel and that kind of thing a little bit, like you would you would pay your, your pilgrimage. Like I would go see my brothers at University of Washington and we'd go down to Broadway just to see what was going on, you know, just to be part of that youth scene. Um, I think that that was kind of a period where where it was like this discovery of a hip hop nation, so to speak, right? And everybody um, who was kind of in it at the time began to see all of these scenes kind of coming up. I go down to LA and we'd like end up at a party where, you know, there'd be like Egyptian Lover playing or Battle Cat, you know, or DJ Bobcat or, you know, any of these types of folks. That was like the space, the place you wanted to be. Um, they'd have DJ battles that were going on um, that you want to go and check out, like in LA or obviously in the Bay, where there was a huge turntablism scene. And this just brought together everybody. Um, it was just dope to be a part of that. You know, what was emerging in Chicago? What was emerging in Detroit? What was going on in Philly? What was going on in Houston? All those places have stories to tell. And again, the way to tell the story is, is how did it integrate and how did it dance with, how did those indigenous expressions from these different places emerge and, and navigate and integrate with the expressions that were coming out of New York? And, and each place has, you know, different ways in which it did. All those places had their own scenes and discovering and looking at those scenes I think is a fascinating story on itself and you can't ignore that. It's impossible to trace the exact patterns of hip-hop migration because it was really down to people. P. 
people who left New York and L.A. finding their way to Midwest or the South, whatever their taste happened to be, influenced what they took with them and what they shared with their new communities. Because in the late 70s and early 80s, hip-hop was not being played on national radio. People were physically taking it with them. Which is not to say that these places didn't have their own organic hip-hop scenes, but for our immediate purposes, let's trace back some particular songs and styles that had outsized influence on these regions. The Southern Network. The emergence of hip-hop artists in the American South was slower and more diffuse. Atlanta, Houston, New Orleans, and Miami fall under the umbrella of Southern rap. Artists didn't really break through until hip-hop found more commercial success in the late 80s. The Ghetto Boys of Houston came on the scene first, spitting complex, intense gangster rap narratives. But it was in Atlanta that things really took hold. Outcasts changed the game. Breaking up the East Coast, West Coast domination of hip-hop with a style that was completely their own, rooted in instrumental soul and funk. Rappers Big Boy and Andre 3000 went to the same East Point High School as members of Goody Mob. They would all record their early records in the studio of producer Rico Wade, which was located in the basement of his mother's house. Nascent hip-hop scenes in New Orleans and Memphis traced back to a rare single that made its way down from Queens in the early 90s. The song Drag Rap, Trigger Man, by the Showboys was a massive hit in the Southern dance clubs, despite the artists having no idea and receiving no compensation from their label, Profile. The song has been sampled thousands of times and became the foundation of New Orleans bounce music, a sped-up, heavily electronic version of hip-hop. This set the stage for New Orleans-based Cash Money Records, who would produce massive artists, such as Lil Wayne. I mean, just the fact that I've seen hip-hop grow from its inception in a few different places. I remember rapper Shy D from Atlanta, who was the first person you ever heard do hip-hop out of Atlanta. Um, he's pretty much lost in the sauce because once hip-hop went commercial, you know, bigger artists came in, bigger names came in. But at the foundation of all these different places in the country that, that hip-hop picked up on, there are pioneers and there are artists who led the charge and have always, um, they might have got hip-hop from New York, but created their own brand of hip-hop, wherever that region be, be it New Orleans, Atlanta, out west, or Midwest. Okay, the example came from here, but they created their own type of hip-hop. Midwest Choppers. Pioneered in the early 80s by groups like the Treacherous Three out of Harlem, high-speed rapping became a dominant influence over cities in the Midwest, where it became known as chopping. The hip-hop scenes in Cleveland, Detroit, and Chicago gestated the form and produced groundbreaking artists in the early 90s, such as Bone thugs and harmony Twista, and producer Jay Dilla. The Midwest obsession with world record rap speed continues on in the next-gen hip-hop artists like Chance the Rapper and Danny Brown. Let's go global, baby. Worldwide. Hip-hop may have started in a basement in the South Bronx, but you would struggle to find a place on earth that hasn't been exposed to two turntables and a microphone. It used to be a flex that you could rent an OJ car and drive from the Bronx to Uptown and back again, hitting every party on the way. Now, it's all about private jets from London to Tokyo. 
What does it mean for hip-hop to be a global phenomenon, especially for those who are there at the beginning? What does it mean for the language and aesthetic? Has the mass appeal changed the music, or does it have mass appeal because of its humble origins? Oh, we was the Beatles when we went to Japan. When we got off the plane in Japan, we was like the, the Jackson 5, the Beatles all in one. You know what I mean? And that was uh, right <laughs> your cast, right yeah. or wrong. It you was like the British invasion to, to the U.S. It was the U.S. Yeah. invasion to Tokyo. The hip-hop yeah, invasion man. to that Tokyo. That was an awesome experience, man. I mean, After wow. the film Wild Style was released, um, some distributors from Japan um, licensed the film, and we all went to Japan to promote it. We were there for about, what, two and a half, three weeks? Yeah, 30 days. Um, just day to day, doing different promo, different events, um, um, movie uh, premieres, um, dancing in the streets, going to clubs. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. But we introduced hip-hop to Japan. Right. I mean, they had no right. idea about what hip-hop was, the elements right. of hip-hop or anything. And we, we celebrated right. each one of those elements. We had graffiti buses. Remember, B, we had our own yeah. bus with all yeah. the graffiti uh, artists with us. We had man. cans of oh, spray man. paint was, to spray man. whatever we wanted. They yeah, built felt like the stages on main streets in Tokyo yeah. and put up sound systems. And we did, yeah. we performed and had the B-Boys, the Rocksteady crew was out there. Yeah. It was, like B said, we made history yeah. out there. And B was a star. He did. B was a star out there, boy. Man, they well, loved well, him so busy. Up. B out there in Japan, yeah, boy. Yeah, man. Wow. We had an awesome time out there. But And then when we came back, what made it for us even better, because Run DMC went out there. But when they came back home, they soon they saw me. Or I guess if they saw any one of them, they probably said, yo, y'all. Yo, y'all was in Japan? Yeah. We beat y'all to something. Okay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> Might have been our last gasp, but we got something in before you, before the takeover. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that made us, that made me, because when DM, uh, DMC told me that, he said, yo, B, we was in Japan and everything was wild style this and busy being the cold crush and all this. And I was like, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I felt great behind that, man. That was awesome, man. Yeah, we left the mark. You felt like you're tapped in into all of these scenes all around the world, and that's powerful. You know, for somebody who is really isolated, you know, like I said, in the middle of the Pacific, the age of like 13, 14, 15, 16, like knowing that there's kids like you in Japan, right, or in Brazil or wherever, and, and that they're getting off the same way that you're getting off, that you can actually have a correspondence with them. You can contact them and talk with them. and and people have the same enthusiasms and you're into this. Like, it, it was just a beautiful thing. In the early days of hip-hop, uh, we, weren't, we weren't in touch enough to understand the value of hip-hop going beyond us. <laughs> we felt like this is our thing and anybody else that did it, we had some kind of disdain for. Uh, we didn't realize the value of it spreading throughout the globe. But I always knew at some point, once the world got hip to this, they would love it. And I saw it firsthand when we went to Japan uh, for the Wild Style Tour. And they had never been exposed to hip hop. They didn't know about scratching, break dancing. Well, they knew about graffiti, because that's always been around. But uh, the art of turntablism, none of that. And we brought that consciousness to Japan. And the reception that it got let me know that globally, this is gonna become a phenomenon. 
And that was back in 1983. Hip-hop brought the world together. Hip-hop not only brought our things that we have in common together, but it brought our differences together as well. It brought our problems together as well. It brought our issues together. Yeah, this whole planet is hip-hop, man. Rather, they know it. We took over this planet without a gun. The culture of hip-hop. There's no place on this planet that don't have a breakdancer, a graffiti writer on the wall somewhere, a, 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 a DJ, a MC or somebody trying to beatbox. No place, no place. You got you got internet now. You can go everywhere. You got the Africans rocking. They doing something. You got the Japanese. Some of them, I seen the Japanese Cold Crush 4. Try that. I seen the Japanese Grandmaster Cast, a KG, AD, and Easy L. Breakdance, rocking, Cold Crush 4. What? Wow. All around the world, man. We took over, man. Our culture went from the boogie down Bronx. See me, you, Flash, Bam, Herc, Look what we did, man. Look what we did, man. And when you talk about the Globe's realization of the culture, it's not just about the music. They've realized the entire culture, the style, the fashion, um, the different elements involved in hip-hop, the knowledge of hip-hop, and its execution. The truth is that hip-hop was always speaking to a larger audience. The bigger, the better. It's a musical form that is rooted in people coming together in celebration. In other words, hip-hop is a universal language. This is the origins of hip-hop. Looking for more origins of hip-hop content? Check out the Origins of Hip-Hop television show. New episodes air Tuesdays at 10, 9 central, only on A&E. Watch live, stream, or on demand. And don't miss the exclusive after show, Origins of Hip Hop Extended Play, hosted by me, Kaz, and the legendary Shah Rock. Premiering on video on demand after every new episode of Origins of Hip Hop on AE. This episode is hosted by yours truly, Grandmaster Kaz. Produced and edited by Bennett Barbaco and Rob Amjar. Written and produced by Clay Seneschal. Our associate producer is the lovely Emma Damakash. And executive produced by Bennett Barbaco and Larry Adam. And for A&E, this episode was also produced by Aisha Jordan. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And executive producer is Jesse Katz. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.